Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. Welcome everybody back to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Okay, I have a question for you. Have you ever had a chance to travel across the Great Plains in North America? I'm talking about the states where, you know, you're driving and you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. Let's say like Wyoming, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kansas, the Great Plains, where you look around and you think, my God, why would anyone want to live here? When you look around and there aren't any animals, all you can see are cornfields. Did you know that that area in the Great Plains in North America had at one time, one of the greatest concentrations of wildlife in the world. Did you know it was home to over, this like blows my mind, 35 million bison? It was once home to wolves. It was once home to grizzly bears. Did you know grizzly bears are actually only in the Rocky Mountains and are only in the mountains because we actually push them there? Humans push them there? That grizzly bears actually evolved to be a plains predator? It just blows my mind what America once was and how we literally had the American Serengeti in our own backyard. I mean, similar to what's going on right now in Africa. On the show today, I have on author of the American Serengeti, Dan Flores. My wife and I actually listened to the audiobook of American Serengeti on the way to Yellowstone last year. And it just, the information in there just blew my mind. We learned all about the Great Plains and what it once was. And Dan does such a good job recalling all the animals that once lived out there. And some of the animals we still have today, but I'll tell you what, in this podcast, there's so much awesome information. I know you are absolutely going to love it, especially for those of you living here in the United States or even, you know, just in North America, like to think what once was, it just blows my mind. We had a just uh, just an ecosystem and now it's just completely changed. Don't worry, it's not all depressing, but it's just fascinating to look back and just think a couple hundred years ago, we had this just amazing, amazing place full of all these animals. It is, like I said, so fascinating. So I promise you're gonna love this interview. Before we get to the interview with Dan and talk about the American Serengeti, I encourage you as always to leave a rating and a review just by giving us a five-star rating and just by leaving a review of maybe your favorite episode or what you learned really helps push the podcast out to more listeners. We are growing, which is amazing. We're uh, one of the top nature podcasts in Australia and in Canada. So I just want to say thank you so much. It's awesome that we're getting new listeners by leaving those ratings and reviews. It just pushes the show out. So I'd really appreciate that. And as always, I encourage you to join Dan and I after for the after show. It's Patreon only where you get to listen to exclusive interviews in the after show. Dan and I talk about coyotes. We also talk about his experience on the Joe Rogan podcast. It is just, it's fascinating. So if you want more behind the scenes stuff, you love the show, consider joining us. And that's just by heading over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. With that said though, let's talk about the great American Serengeti. Dan, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Corbin. Thanks for having me. I am so excited. Guess what I have right now? Look at this. Check that out. <laughs> a copy of Dan's book, American Serengeti. I have to tell you what, this is, 
one of my favorite books and you know I, I reached out and was like man I just I, I had to get you on the show after reading this book I absolutely loved it well I'm glad you enjoyed it uh, that's a book that is obviously dear to my heart uh, in part because I was aware when I was working on it that for a lot of people this was going to be new information I mean I think people drive across the Great Plains and it never occurs to them that only 125 years ago, uh, that region of North America was one of the great epic bestiaries of the whole planet. Yeah, and you compare it to, I mean, to to Africa, to the Serengeti in Africa. I mean, hence why it's titled the American Serengeti. And it's crazy to think that, well, you said like a little over 100 years ago, we had that here in North America. We did indeed, and it's, uh, you know, interestingly, uh, when you study uh, 18th and 19th century American history in the West, I mean, you know, today we don't even think of this, but the Great Plains was where all the action was. That's actually where the Indian Wars took place, where the cattle drives took place, and people from all over the world flocked to the American Great Plains just as they did East Africa to see and experience this tremendous abundance of wildlife we had there. Yes. And so if someone listening is wondering what the American Serengeti is, can you just explain it for someone who maybe has not had a chance to read the book? Indeed. It's the country that uh, we all ignore in the 21st century. It's the region of the United States that extends eastward from the front range of the Rocky Mountains. So think Denver with the Rockies in, in the background, except then you turn eastward towards eastern Colorado and Kansas, and that country extended for about 500 miles east of the Rocky Mountain range and up and down the North American continent, basically from Texas, from West Texas, all the way up into Southern Canada. That was the region that produced this tremendous abundance of wildlife, in part because it was the great interior grassland of North America. And so it drew all these animals that grazed uh, on grasslands and, of course, all the predators that then followed and pursued them. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, I've taken countless road trips and I used to, as a kid, roll my eyes going through the flatlands of Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma. My God, it just seems like what's out here. And honestly, after reading your book, you really have a new appreciation of what this area once was and, and the, the animals that once lived out there. Well, I think we all pretty much react to this country that way uh, today. I once lived for about uh, 20 years on the Great Plains in West Texas, and that was when I kind of became fascinated with it. But I realized full well that I was living in an emptied landscape. Now, it certainly had uh, herds of cattle and all sorts of agricultural enterprises going on uh, the growing of cotton and weed and so forth. But it was a landscape I realized that only 100 years before I was there in the 1980s, that country had been 
one of the marvels of the world in terms of, of its wildlife. And so what we're experiencing today and the reason we roll our eyes, I mean, one famous writer about the Great Plains referred to it today as uncountry because it had been completely depopulated of all the romance and all the charm or most of it that had meant that in earlier centuries it was a major magnet and draw for people from around the world. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what the American Serengeti was over, you said, 130 years ago. For listeners, yeah. let's just imagine, um, what what was it like, the animals? Well, I, I began American Serengeti with an effort to recreate what one would have seen 120 years ago. In this particular case, the 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 American history figure through whose eyes I try to let the Great Plains appear before readers was John James Audubon, the great bird painter uh, of the 19th century, who's most famous, of course, as a painter of birds uh, and uh, for whom the Audubon Society today is named. But after Audubon did his famous book, The Birds of America, which appeared in, uh, in 1838, he decided, along with his sons and his father-in-law, that he was going to do a similar work on the mammals of North America. And so, because he lived in Kentucky, he was able to do creatures like white-tailed deer uh, and red wolves and a whole host of creatures that of animals that existed in the woodlands of the East. But Audubon's great success with Birds of America had come about as a result of the authenticity of that book. He had actually seen almost all the birds he had painted. He painted them life-size in his book. And so it was his real experiences with living creatures that made the Birds of America so popular. He realized then he was going to have to do the same thing with the mammals. And so in 1843, he took a trip up the Missouri River uh, across what is now Nebraska, North Dakota, into present-day Montana, to Fort Union. And along the way, he began to observe this phenomenal world that he almost didn't quite realize was there. He had read Lewis and Clark, and he knew Lewis and Clark had been absolutely dazzled by these animals that they had seen. But when Audubon saw it all for himself, I mean, one of, the, one of the lovely phrases in a letter that he wrote to his wife that summer describing all these animals was, he said, I'm so excited, I can't write anymore. I'm going to have to stop my letter. This is just, this place is too exciting. And so what he was seeing as he was standing on the prow of this steamboat called the Omega that was chugging up the Missouri River in western North Dakota, present-day North Dakota, and eastern Montana— he was seeing not only vast herds of bison, but as they were going up the river, he was watching elk herds swim across the river in front of them. He was seeing Rocky Mountain bighorns stand on the pinnacles above the stream itself. He was seeing grizzly bears come down to the edge of the water, which absolutely, of course, just gobsmacked everybody on board, especially an Easterner like, like uh, Audubon. And then as he said, 
everywhere you looked, there were wolves. There was a wolf lying on a sandbar in the middle of the river. There was a wolf sitting like a dog on the bank off to their right. And he ends this passage where he's describing all these creatures. Bison, he says, loping along, presenting this beautiful picturesque view with this line where he says, I've never imagined a country with the number of wolves in it that this country has. And then he closed this passage by saying, it is impossible for anyone who has not seen this wildlife abundance to even imagine the diversity of animals or how many of them there are. And of course, the great thing about it was it's in the Great Plains, so all these creatures are out in plain view in the, this open grassland landscape where you don't have to look through the trees to spot something. They're all in view by the thousands at once. So it's, it's kind of this, you know, and there are many, many people who react that way, but I always thought Audubon, because he's such a, an accomplished naturalist, that his description of all this is a com, uh, really compelling and powerful one and sort of allows us in the 21st century to see through his eyes what that world was like not very long ago in time. Not long ago, it just takes me back once again to Africa. It sounds like what you could see in the Maasai Mara. I mean, truly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I just, I think there's so many people living here who have no idea what, you know, what the, what the plains were, you know, now they're just what cornfields and with agriculture and, you know, um, it's, it's, uh, yeah. Um, so I, one thing I loved about American Serengeti, the book, and by the way, uh, listeners, I'll include a link in the show notes for you guys to pick this up. It's great. And by the way, we actually, I have to say, we listened to the book. I, I, I bought this, but then we listened to it on our way to Yellowstone, which you could buy the audio, which I loved it. Um, but I like how in each chapter you really just highlight an animal and just go into the history. And you yeah. learn so much, and I just have this one right here kind of bookmarked. The one animal I learn so much about, and I find them the most fascinating, are the pronghorns. Oh, yeah. Isn't Absolutely. that... They are the weirdest animals. Can we talk about that? I learned so much. My mind was just blown driving to Yellowstone. Like, you know, as... By the way, we're looking for pronghorns, too, you know, along our way. Well, uh, the pronghorn is very definitely one of the uh, most fascinating creatures of the Great Plains. I mean, at first glance, when people first saw them, when, when Europeans uh, got to the Great Plains and began describing pronghorns, their reaction was, okay, so America has a gazelle, just like Africa does. We have this beautiful striped gazelle that runs in herds across the Great Plains, and they run, as Meriwether Lewis said, more like the rapid flight of birds than like any quadruped he had ever seen before. What they were seeing, though, uh, as you uh, realize in, in your comment uh, about listening to the audiobook of the chapter on, on pronghorns, they were seeing an animal that was one of the few remaining holdovers of the Pleistocene. Pronghorns come from North American evolution, although they look like African gazelles, they're an example of, a, of convergent evolution, and they're not related genetically to any of the gazelles uh, that occupy the Serengeti of the Maasai Mara. They come out of a, uh, an evolutionary stream that starts in North America, 
about 25 million years ago. And there have been many different kinds of pronghorns uh, over that 25 million years. But what we have now is the single remaining animal out of this family of North American animals. And it's an animal that was around in its present form 10,000 years ago during the Pleistocene extinctions when so many creatures were becoming extinct, including, and this is one of the things that makes it so interesting, including all the predators of pronghorns. I mean, pronghorn fawns have a predator today in the form of coyotes, but adult pronghorns have no predators remaining. All the American cheetahs, all the fast-running hyenas all became extinct. So these animals survived into the present without predators as adults. And of course, what questions this raises has to do with, well, then why do they run 60 to 65 miles an hour still when the only animal that's out there that can chase them, a coyote or a wolf, only runs about 40 to 42 miles an hour? Why this overkill in terms of speed? And what we know about this is that pronghorn females still select for males that are the fastest runners. And so they have retained this ability to run away from an American cheetah, even though there hasn't been a cheetah on the Great Plains for 10,000 years. I mean, it's kind of a, what you're almost seeing are animals that act as if they live in a ghost world where, I mean, they still, for example, do what's called in Africa selfish herding where the, uh, the top level animals will hide in the middle of a bunch and they will push all the low status animals out to the edges of the bunch because if there were predators out there, those are the ones that would get caught by a hyena or a cheetah. They still do that as if there are hyenas and cheetahs around, and yet there are no more predators any longer. So it's this ghost animal out of the Pleistocene from 10,000 years ago that still retains all these traits as if it were living among the animals that were here uh, at that time. And that, of course, makes it not only that, of course, it's also very beautiful, and another thing that uh, you probably noticed that a lot of people have talked to me about since they read that chapter, pronghorns never developed the ability to jump. Dude, you just because... read my mind. I was like, that's what blew my mind. I remember I actually had to rewind it in the car. I was like, wait, 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 wait. We had to do that fast forward. Okay, yeah, continue. Totally. Yeah, yeah. they never developed the ability to jump yes. because there was nothing on the Great Plains for them to jump over. And one of the reasons that's become a critical element of pronghorn life in our time is that this means that once we started settling the Great Plains and putting up barbed wire fences, pronghorns were unable to migrate and get through barbed wire fences. They would just pile up by the hundreds and sometimes by the thousands in front of barbed wire fences. And the reason this was important is because the way pronghorns escaped big winter blizzards and blue northers on the Great Plains was to run in front of them. They would migrate sometimes two or 300 miles to get away from a storm. And when we started erecting barbed wire fences east and west across the Great Plains, we began killing them by the thousands because they would stack up against fences, unable to go through 
and unable to jump over them. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, because of their evolutionary traits, they've come down to us in modern times. And I mean, we just barely hung on to them. They were one of these animals from the Great Plains that we winnowed from 15 million down to fewer than 7,000 animals at one point. Some people believe fewer than 5,000 of them oh my God. then began slowly building their populations back up in the 20th century. But that inability to understand that they couldn't jump like deer do over fences was one of the things that almost did them in. Yeah, I, that just shocked me. And once again, a new appreciation. I live in Idaho and we have, you know, my family used to have property out in the middle of the desert. And we'd always, you know, we'd always call them antelope. Of course, now we know they're not antelope, but they, I'd always kind of take them for granted. But now it's just like now when I see those tan little bodies with the white rumps, I'm like, oh, my God, you just have this new appreciation. And in the book, you mentioned, I mean, their closest relative could be giraffes. Yeah, yeah, they seem well, to be probably uh, 25 million years ago when the family first emerged. I mean, they have legs that are somewhat giraffe-like. And so mm -hmm. taxonomists uh, and biologists who study taxonomy believe that at some point, giraffes and the very earliest pronghorns in North America were related enough to give pronghorns some kind of uh, genetic remembrance of this early connection. Yeah. Okay. Can we just talk really quick about the American cheetah and the hyenas? Like what, what were they like compared to our modern day cheetahs and modern day hyenas in Africa? Well, some biologists say that uh, you can gauge how fast an American cheetah was by how fast a pronghorn can run. And female pronghorns, when they're fairly young uh, and, and not pregnant, can run 65 miles an hour. I mean, they are the Ferraris of the American Great Plains. And so the, the argument has been, well, one thing we probably know about cheetahs is that they could maybe only run 62 or 63 miles an hour because pronghorns had to develop the ability to at least stay a little bit ahead of a hunting cheetah. But we had cheetahs uh, that evolved once again separately from the cheetahs of Africa. Our cheetahs were not related to cheetahs there. Our cheetahs were more closely related to cougars. And so they come out of the same family that produced the mountain lion. But on the Great Plains, those animals evolved into fast running pursuers of medium-sized animals like, like pronghorns and probably deer uh, as well. But they became extinct as so many of our, uh, our indigenous American creatures did, including a lot of the creatures that migrated over into North America from Asia. Many of them became extinct uh, 10 to 15,000 years ago during the Pleistocene extinctions. During the, during now, the we don't know exactly why the, the predators became extinct along with the animals that they preyed on, but the supposition is that probably the ungulates that were the prey base may have become scarce or extinct at a point at which the predators then had no animals that could keep them alive. Now, since we think cheetahs pursued pronghorns and pronghorns are still with us, that may not explain the answer for America's cheetahs and, uh, and nobody so far. There are quite a number of Pleistocene animals, by the way, that we don't have a good answer for their extinction. For quite a number of them, though, we think what the explanation is, is that 
North America had not yet been discovered by human beings until 15,000 years ago. And when humans who had migrated out of Africa and into Eurasia as big game hunters finally got to North America, they confronted a bestiary that was completely innocent and naive of human hunters armed with spears uh, and uh, adattles and other technology. And so quite a number of the animals here we think were probably pushed to extinction by, by hunting. Really? But, I mean, there's some that we don't quite understand. I mean, you know, horses evolved in North America. As you know from listening to American Serengeti, I've got a chapter uh, in that book about wild horses. And the, one of the reasons it's there is because horses are actually one of our best candidates for an authentic North American animal. They evolved 56 million years ago in North America. We're here down to nine or 10,000 years ago. During that subsequent time from their early evolution to the Pleistocene, they had spread around the world across the land bridges and ended up in Asia and in Africa where they became zebras and in Europe where they became the wild horses of Europe. Yet while those creatures survived the wild horses of North America also went extinct around nine to 10,000 years ago. And so when we brought, we Europeans brought horses to America 500 years ago as domesticated animals, and they got loose in the American West. I mean, they went wild in the West in an instant because they were pre-adapted to the landscape by 50 million years of evolution. That's why we have wild horses in the West today and why we have something of a problem with the population of wild horses because we've eliminated all their predators now. It's just the horse on the landscape with no more wolves and not enough mountain lions to hunt them down. And so we're confronting this endless success of an animal that evolved here and now has no more predators to keep its population in check. Yeah, it blows my mind. I'm looking at the Owyhee Mountains right now where I live and we have wild horses in the mountains. It's, yeah. it's just amazing. It's uh, I've never seen it. My wife has, but uh, they're just incredible. So let's talk about the one animal. I mean, it's just right on the cover of the book. When you think of the plains, <laughs> you think, of course, of these bison. Let's talk about, I mean, what was it like 120 years ago? here in North America on the Great Plains with bison? Well, at 120 years ago, so that, that gets us back to 1900. And at that point, of course, we're desperately trying to save the last thousand or so animals. So sorry. Out of what we think <laughs> at one time were 30 million of them. Wow. And we've gotten them down to a fewer than a thousand by the turn of the 20th century. We wind the clock back to say 1850 or so, 1850, okay. which is about the point in yeah about the point in time when the numbers of bison began a downward uh, a decline. What you had was in effect the American version of the wildebeest of East Africa, just as when you go on safari to Africa, and by the way. I missed the safari I had planned for last summer as a result of oh. COVID. And so it's renewed for next summer, the summer of 2022, when nice. my wife and I are going to go to Kenya. 
to the Masai Mara uh, and to uh, to the northern stretches of the Serengeti and and so forth. But what you had in American bison, in effect, was the North American version of the wildebeest, along with these grand migrations that the wildebeest do uh, as a result of the rains in Africa in the summertime from arid lands up to well-watered country. Bison uh, are a very interesting species. I mean, we tend to think of them as being the iconic North American animal. I've been talking about animals like horses that evolved here 56 million years ago or pronghorns that evolved here 25 million years ago. Bison not only didn't come out of North American evolution, we think now they didn't get to North America until a half million years ago. They evolved in Asia, spread across Asia, and finally crossed the Bering Land Bridge into North America about a half million years ago, in which, at which time they were in several different forms, several much larger versions of the animal that we have today. But most of those big versions became extinct during the Pleistocene extinctions, the great simplification in North America, when we lost the horses and the cheetahs and the camels, another animal that evolved in North America that survived elsewhere and we lost here was the camel. Uh, bison were on hand at a time when North America got simplified and many of the grazing niches were vacant because of the loss of horses and camels and other creatures. And one of the reasons they became this animal that flooded the Great Plains is because there was so little competition left that nature basically put its eggs in one basket, in the basket of bison. And so starting about eight or 9,000 years ago, bison had not only shrunk down to the animal of its present size, but they began vastly multiplying in numbers and created a range that stretched from northern Alberta all the way down into Mexico. And at certain times in American history, their numbers either became large enough on the Great Plains or in some cases there was a drought on the Great Plains that drove them eastward and westward. And so one of those episodes happened to be the time when Europeans were arriving 400 years ago. There had been enough bison on the Great Plains and enough of an arid uh, climate regime that they had gotten driven eastward all the way to the Atlantic seaboard and to Florida and to Georgia and to the Carolinas and westward into places like Utah, Oregon, Washington State. Now there was still a population on the Great Plains, but these animals had basically spread almost from one coast to another. That, that movement out from the plains, what tended to be a kind of a cyclical thing where they would, bison would sometimes spread eastward and westward, and then they would retract natural homeland on the grasslands. As I said a few minutes ago, we think probably in 1850, there were still about 30 million of them left. But they began getting very rapidly reduced from that point on by a number of factors. Um, one of the factors uh, was the introduction of the horse, which put horses on the grasslands once again that became a competitor for grass with bison. Another was the introduction of 
old world bovine diseases by cattle and oxen that were being driven westward across uh, South Pass and the Overland Trails. And those diseases, uh, particularly bison tuberculosis and things like that, bovine tuberculosis, got into the bison herds. We know that because the last bison that were left, most of them were infected with this, in effect, a European bovine disease. But the real, the real kicker uh, that caused bison numbers to drop was the, the market for the animals that by the 1850s, and especially after the Civil War, was basically killing millions of these animals a year and shipping them eastward and then into Europe for their hides, for the meat, uh, for the glue made from their tongues. Eventually, we figured out how to make leather belts out of their hides, and those belts powered the Industrial Revolution back east. So like so many of the animals of, of the Great Plains, and really all over North America, I mean, think passenger pigeons, for mm -hmm. example, what we did in the United States was we converted the wildlife abundance of, of the United States into market commodities in order to fuel the economy, the growing economy of the United States. So the reason we lost passenger pigeons and Carolina parakeets and nearly lost pronghorns and nearly lost bison and nearly lost a whole host of other animals, elk, bighorn sheep, was because we were killing them for the market. And I mean, it made a lot of people rich to be sure. I mean, we had, you know, the beaver trade made John Jacob Astor one of the richest people in the world. Uh, but of course, what it did was to depopulate North America of so many of the animals that were the icons of millions of years of evolution. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's super sad. And I guess it's a good segue into, uh, I think that the chapter that really fascinated me the most, but made me probably hate people the most is probably your grizzly bear chapter. Because it's just, I mean, and first of all, a lot of people listening might not even know this, but grizzly bears, as you explained in the book, these evolved to be plains, you know, predators. Like where they are now on the mountains, like that's not actually, I mean, we push them there, which a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Grizzly uh, bears were, if you read Lewis and Clark, for example, you know that Lewis and Clark are encountering grizzly bears um, and sort of after they kill a couple for the sake of science. After that point, sort of with no real purpose other than adventure and to see if they can do it, shooting grizzly bears right and left as they cross basically North Dakota mm. into Montana. So where they see all these grizzly bears that they have all these epic adventures with, Meriwether Lewis being chased off a bluff and having to dive into the Missouri River to get away from a bear that's pursuing him is out on the Great Plains. And the reason grizzly bears are out on the Great Plains is because of buffalo. Because when you've got 30 million buffalo and 15 million pronghorns and untold millions numbers of elk and bighorn sheep and mule deer and creature after creature by the millions out on these grasslands, grizzly bears liking protein and loving to scavenge from dead carcasses are going to find their absolute Elysian fields 
out on the plains where there are buffalo endlessly being drowned in the Missouri River and endlessly running, being run off cliffs and dying at the bottom of cliffs. And in other words, there is such a surfeit of dead carcasses to scavenge from out on the Great Plains as opposed to the Rockies or anywhere else in the West. That's where the grizzlies were. And as you mentioned, I mean, this is part of the story that I tell in that chapter about grizzly bears is that we basically, the reason grizzlies are all now in the Rocky Mountains is because we basically pushed them there. That's where they fled to, to get away from this massive destruction that was going on on the plains from the 1860s to the 1880s. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's why they, they happen to be there. One of the one of the interesting things, and I just talk about it a little bit in the final chapter of the book that's going on today, if you subscribe to Montana newspapers, and I still do because, of course, I lived there for 20 years before moving to Santa Fe a few years ago, is that in the last decade or so, every spring when grizzly bears come out of hibernation, there are grizzly bears heading out across the plains just as they always did for untold millions of years, getting as far out as 150 miles out onto the Montana plains now, away from the mountains, and sort of shocking people who have been used to a century of not seeing grizzly bears out there. And, you know, the, the Great Falls Tribune, for example, has been full of stories in the last couple of years of school children standing at a bus stop waiting for the school bus to show up and looking behind them and having a grizzly bear walk 100 yards away uh, from them as they're waiting for the school bus to arrive. So it's creating a, you know, the grizzly bears are doing exactly what they've always done. It's the same reason bison try to leave Yellowstone Park in the wintertime and go down to lower elevations. They're all following these natural migrations they've always done. But now when they go on migrations, of course, there are human obstacles in the way. Yeah, it's um, it was a tough, it was a very tough chapter to read, I think, for the grizzly bears because just the way, I mean, I hate to put, I guess, to say it bluntly, you were, you talk about how they were so hard to kill and people, I mean, just and that's something you noted in the book that it just like some of the horrific things, um, I mean, the way, I mean, it was horrible. I mean, just reading what we did, um, it's just shocking. Yeah, it was, it was shocking and. Uh... You know, and some of the some of the most egregious examples of that occur in those descriptions of the Lewis and Clark party, mm-hmm. uh, as I say in that chapter. You know, I, I kept wishing, surely to God, Meriwether Lewis has got to tell his guys, stop shooting grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they shoot, they encounter about 50 grizzly bears on their way up the Missouri River out on the Great Plains, and they shoot more than half of them, and a lot of times they'll go out in, in groups of 10 or 15 people and they'll spot a grizzly bear that's just sort of grazing out innocently, paying no attention uh, to these humans creeping up, the, up on them. And they'll have four or five guys shoot and everybody else reserve their fire because, of course, they're shooting muzzle-loading uh, flint rifles. And the result often is that a bear will end up with five or six bullets in it it will turn as grizzly bears do, as people in the West always used to say, a grizzly bear fairly, pretty rarely, unless it's got cubs, is not going to attack you 
unless you attack it. If you shoot it, they're definitely going to turn if they can and come after you. And these 45 caliber muzzle and 50 caliber muzzle loaders these guys were using wouldn't kill them. And so what you ended up were these rodeos out on the Great Plains where a grizzly bear with sometimes 10 or 15 balls in it from these muzzle loading rifles would chase these guys around for half an hour or 45 minutes and then finally crawl into a thicket on a sandbar out on the Missouri River. And they would, the guys would sit there on the bank and listen to this grizzly bear roar away the last of its life as it perished out of the sandbar. Oh I mean, it's just, you know, th- those were, those are hard, I'll admit, hard sort of stories to wrap your mind around because it implies a certain kind of, uh, a certain kind of cruelty is essentially the word towards these animals. Yeah. And I think, and I mentioned this was, I read this back um, in last September. So I'm a little foggy, but I didn't, I think one of the stories you told where one of the guys got mauled and I almost, I know it sounds bad, but I was like, woo, like (laughs) go grizzly bear. Like, I know it sounds, you know, but I was just like, man, I just, yeah, because they, you know, you say in the chapter when they were, uh, when you, when people would try to shoot them, they would go after you. (laughs) It was not a, you know, easy, uh, they weren't an easy target, I guess, uh, to try to kill. So. I mean, the, the one you're remembering is from uh, the Jacob Fowler party down in southeastern Colorado in about 1820. A bunch of guys from Arkansas and Missouri who probably had no idea what a grizzly bear was. And they came upon a grizzly bear in a thicket, and one of them shot it. And what the grizzly bear did, I mean, this is a party of like 25 men. What the grizzly bear did is so common among predators, even lions in Africa will do the same thing. It fixated on the guy that shot uh, into it and ran through all these other people scattering in every direction, paying no attention to them after this one guy. And this guy finally ran up a tree and the grizzly bear managed to pull him down out of the tree and locked its its jaws around his head and the other people ran in and finally killed the bear, revived the guy. He sits around and talks to them for a day and they say, well, it looks like you're going to be okay. You survived it. And he said, no, I heard my skull break. And that night he became delirious and the next morning they woke up and they found his brains had oozed out of a spot where the grizzlies, one of its, uh, its uh, teeth had pierced into his skull, and uh, so they had to bury the guy. But it said a lot about, you know, about the way grizzlies react. The bear had not attacked these guys. This guy shoots it, and it goes after him, ignoring everybody else. I mean, there were even dogs in the group chasing it and barking after it, Mm. and it simply goes for the guy who fired at it. Yeah, I think that goes with like a lot of animals. I mean, if you leave them alone, more than likely they will leave you alone. I, you know, I always teach that during my you know wildlife presentations because it just sounds like you said in these stories the grizzly was just minding its own business, and then, you know, we come in and startle it and harm it, and uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about something that's so controversial and it hits home to me because I'm in Idaho, which if you're a wolf in Idaho, it's not looking good right now. Um, can we talk about wolves? Because, yeah, July 1st, they just passed that new bill where they want to eliminate, I think it's over 90 or 95 percent of the wolves here in Idaho. Oh, yeah. man. What a uh, 
Would you say they're probably the, one of the most controversial animals, if not the most, in North America throughout well, history? Well, they are. And I've, I've yeah. just been, uh, I've been writing about wolves uh, quite a bit in the book I'm working on now um, and have been uh, sort of reviewing a lot of the story. Uh, and, you know, to, not to, to go too far into deep time, but what I would just observe that's curious about the wolf is that we almost all have a version of the wolf lying at our feet somewhere in the house. The wolf was the first animal we ever domesticated as a companion animal and as a helper. And one of the reasons we did that, of course, is because we come out of our own evolution as hunters, as predators, and having observed wolves and having learned from wolves, I think 15,000 years ago when we domesticated wolves and created the domestic dog, we thought they could help us in our economy, and we were right. 10,000 years ago, though, in the old world, we started also domesticating sheep and goats and wild cattle. And all of the viciousness and hatred for wolves, I think, comes from that moment in time and has followed people who herd livestock all over the world into North America and down to our present moment. And one example of this that I think makes it fairly clear is that native people, American Indians, did not domesticate any ungulates. They didn't domesticate bison. They didn't domesticate bighorn sheep. They didn't domesticate pronghorns. And so down to 150 years ago, or less than that really, native people still regarded wolves the way I think we always had back in our long evolutionary history as this animal we learned from and we respected and we admired and we didn't hate. And so without, a, without domesticated stock to native people, the wolf was this very exemplary animal that many people, in fact, in vision quests, selected as the animal that was sort of their, their totem creature. Meanwhile, though, everybody coming out of the old world who was used to herding sheep or goats or, or cattle hated wolves with a passion. And that, and one other thing about that story is that in the old world, before we got to America, we managed to successfully eradicate wolves in places like the British Isles. Hmm. So when people arrive uh, in Massachusetts in the 1620s, they come from a culture that for the last 200 years had completely wiped out wolves in the British Isles. And their first instinct on finding wolves in North America, they were very disappointed and bitter about that, by the way. But their first instinct, the first environmental law passed in North American history is passed by the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, and it's a bounty on wolves. Uh. And so from the very beginning, with this old world hatred, we decide we're gonna do everything we can to wipe them out. And what follows then is 400 years, and from about 1900 to the 1970s, a very successful war waged by an agency of the federal government called the Biological Survey on behalf of stock people 
to completely eradicate wolves. And they tried to eradicate coyotes too, just didn't have nearly as much luck doing it. And so we, as recently as the late 20th century, I mean, we still have this kind of, this sort of hatred for these animals that really verges in a lot of places on cruelty. And yet at the same time, of course, scientists were discovering that in fact, the wolf wild uh, prey relationship in North America was so ancient and so embedded in the way wild prey interacted with their ecologies that if you removed wolves, what you ended up getting were endless eruptions of animals like elk and caribou and mule deer and moose that without wolves to prey on them would end up destroying their habitats. I mean, this happened over and over and over again in the 20th century. It's what led Aldo Leopold, that famous American wildlife management expert, to finally conclude that in order to create healthy ecologies in North America, we, got, we have to reintroduce wolves. That's the only way things stay healthy, or otherwise we're endlessly battling these eruptions of wildlife populations. So, I mean, what happened, of course, is that under the endangered species, we reintroduced them all over the West, very successfully so, but they didn't cease becoming a political creature. And so what we've got mm. in places like Idaho and Montana today with the legislatures dominated uh, by, I hate to say it, the Republican Party, is this reinstitution of the old time religion of killing wolves, we're just going to kill them down to the point where we keep the federal government off our necks. It's, if we can get them down to that point right at the very minimum and the Endangered Species Act doesn't come back into play, then that's the plan. And Montana and Idaho both have, have uh, moved to implement it. It is disgusting. And I... You know, and even like looking at the research and the data that we have, like here in Idaho, I think it was over the last three years, wolves only accounted for 0.04% of total livestock fatality. I mean, total livestock um, fatalities. And it's just when you look at how many are killed like livestock by disease and I mean, wolves do not take not even a toll. And so it's just all this misinformation and uh, it just, it blows my mind and you know, um, going, Plus, of course, you have defenders of wildlife out there compensating stockmen for their losses. I mean, we've had that in play ever since the, the 1980s and 90s, where you actually have a compensation program if you lose an animal to wolves. Yeah. But as I said, it's the old time religion. That's what we want to go back to is this this thing where for 10,000 years we've been hating them and we don't want to give it up. Yeah, I just, it makes me so mad. And, and it's going to cost us more as taxpayers here in Idaho to hire people to eradicate them. Like it's going to be, I think it's over $400,000 or $500,000. It just blows my mind. Um, and the way that they're proposing to kill them, just, you know, hunting at night, using dogs, you know, night vision, uh, just, it's just not Snare. fair. Snares, um, you know, yeah. killing, killing pups. It's just... It blows my mind in 2021 that we're still uh, treating animals like this. And I, yeah, anyway, so I just, um, I'm hoping the new administration will do something. I, I, you know, they're trying to, 
I don't know, to get them back, you know, listed on the endangered species list. We were hoping something would happen before July 1st, and that has uh, not happened, to my knowledge. So, anyway, um, trying to, I guess. Well, I, I think, you know, what, what Montana and Idaho have both been doing. Meanwhile, of course, Colorado just voted to welcome the recovery of wolves <laughs> in that state. But uh, so... So we've got a, a kind of, a, you know, a, a sort of a wild whiplash across the West going back and forth. And we're finally having some success in New Mexico and Arizona with Mexican wolf recovery. I mean, we're hmm. finally starting to get a significant number of animals in the wild. That's taken a long time because the Southwest just doesn't have the sort of wild country hmm. uh, with the prey base that the Northern Rockies does. But I'm sure hoping the Northern Rockies... A uh, very disappointed, kind of heartbroken that the state I lived in for 22 years, Montana, is doing this. And the state I was, I mean, I, I was in the Bitterroot Valley, so Idaho was on the top of the mm. mountain range right across the valley for me. It was that close. Uh, I'm really kind of heartbroken to see these two states that I, I really care about and love doing this now. Yeah, and here, you know, I, you know, going back to Yellowstone, when you see wild wolves, I mean, I don't think there's, I mean, I, I would compare it to seeing, you know, like a, you know, an animal in Africa. They're so iconic. I mean, you'll you'll always remember your first wolf sighting, but they bring in millions and millions of dollars. People want to see wolves, and what blows my mind is when they cross that imaginary border, which they don't know, by the way, into outside of Yellowstone and in Wyoming, they are treated like vermin. They can be shot and poisoned and it just blows my mind. Like they bring in so much money. When people go to Yellowstone, it's like you ask people what they want to see. Number one animal is going to be the wolf. So it just, yeah, it just blows my mind. I stayed a few years ago in a hotel in Cook City, just, you know, right outside the Lamar Valley where you can get up at five o'clock in the morning and go out and watch wolves. I mean, it's like primeval America in the yes. Lamar Valley. And uh, yeah. the guy who was managing the hotel, which was full of people going to the Lamar Valley early in the morning to watch wolves from all over the world. When I went to the bar that night, the first night I was staying in this hotel, the guy who had checked us in and was managing the hotel that was full of wolf watchers was wearing a T-shirt that said smoke a pack a day and on the front of course was a wolf with rifle crosshairs uh across Jesus. his face i mean and this guy is making his money in his, his living day. yeah his living from people who are there from around the globe to see those wolves and yet in his private life he's an advocate for killing them i oh my god I just, and by the way, Lamar Valley, uh, listeners, if you haven't been in uh, what Northeast Yellowstone, you have to go. It is the, it literally took me back to Africa. We saw, you know, the wolves, we saw, uh, you know, of course, bison, pronghorn. We saw a grizzly bear off in the distance. We saw grizzly bears and wolves together fighting over a, well, not fighting, but yeah, yeah. The grizzly was, you know, um, over this pronghorn carcass and wolves were coming in. We saw coyotes, bald eagles. This happened this all at once. It's, I was telling my wife, it's just it's like going back in time. 
But it just, we were so obsessed with those wolves. We started doing research on the way home and we found out about all the packs and families. And then like we found out on our, you know, as we approached the house an hour out, we found out, oh, by the way, that wolf crossed the border and was shot. Like it just, it blows my mind. Like we literally did this research, Dan, for hours about this one wolf pack and the family. And then we like found the conclusion and oh my God, she was shot by a hunter. Oh my God, dude. It just, it's just so frustrating. There's, there's a very famous episode of that about uh, the female wolf uh, 06. Yes. Uh, yes. And who's, who still has the, uh, the attribute of being the only wolf uh, that's ever had uh, its uh, obituary written up in the New York Times. And that wolf, which people followed for a decade and was a worldwide famous celebrity animal, uh, was shot by a hunter. She had gotten just outside the park. Um, and uh, it's a very, uh, very moving scene, in fact, because a journalist uh, ended up getting to the guy who killed her. Now, he never really revealed his name, but he did at least tell the story about how it happened. And when he shot this animal and he walked up to her, a pack of 12 wolves appeared in a semicircle around her and all sat down and began howling. And so unnerved this guy who had shot her that he turned around and walked back to his truck, sat in his truck for another hour before he finally went out and dragged her carcass uh, back to his pickup. But that pack had assembled around her dead body and howled uh, in unison at him as he walked up to get her. I mean, you know, the, you're dealing with animals that are not only highly intelligent, but have a have culture. I mean, they can convey information just as we do from generation to generation. And so uh, that, that story, unfortunately, is going to happen a lot more now that both Idaho and Montana have wolf hunting seasons. And of course, as you mentioned in Wyoming, or Idaho and Montana do, and Wyoming allows you to kill wolves as vermin any time of the year. I don't get it, Dan. Um, I just feel sometimes I feel so helpless. Um, you know what I mean? Cause I just, I want to try to make a difference with the podcast and you know, with, and I did a man, I, I did a video on my TikTok and, and Instagram reels. And I'll tell you what, I got some crazy comments and people that wanted to hunt me down, but just trying to raise awareness and, you know what the general consensus was is that a lot of my online audience and and by the way that's building up to almost a million people on TikTok had no idea that this was going like had no idea this younger generation of what's going on. Wait, what? They're killing wolves like this? Wait, what? They only kill 0.004% like and I feel like I I don't know like trying to I don't know. I just I feel like trying to get the message out there is the most I can do. I I mean do you ever feel helpless like that, or do you feel like you're making a difference? Well, I don't know if I'm making a difference or not. As you know, Edward Abbey once said, "Writing books is not enough." So, I mean, I uh, I do uh, try to help out a couple of particular environmental groups. Uh, Project Coyote in mm -hmm. California is one, as a result of the uh, the Coyote America book I did a few years ago, and American Prairie Reserve in Montana, which of course is trying to recreate the American Serengeti out in central Montana is another group I try to help out. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it can be depressing and disappointing. And it's, it's, uh, 
it's disturbing to see these sentiments that you know are so old and so unexamined prevail and actually occupy uh, the primary position in the political debate about animals like wolves right now. I mean, you would have thought at a time when we were recovering these animals that we had very deliberately extirpated across the entire uh, lower 48, that there would have been a sea change in attitude. And certainly there was among a large, probably a majority of the American population there was. But we still have enough people who are in charge of a lot of these Western states and can get themselves elected that they do things like Montana and Idaho are doing now. Not good, not good. Okay, Dan, we're approaching an hour. Will you join me for the after show? Sure. Let's do it. Okay, by the way, um, can you let listeners know where they can pick up copies of your book? Because you have several uh, New York Times bestsellers, including the American Serengeti and also Coyote America. Where can they pick those up? Are you on Amazon? Yeah, the best best place to get them is on Amazon. I mean, they're uh, they're obviously less expensive. I mean, as, as a first option, go to your local independent bookstore. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Indeed, try to try to support your local independent bookseller. Uh, but if you can't, uh, they're all on uh, on Amazon. You'll find I have a, a site on Amazon with all my books, uh, and both those books are uh, in audio versions and Kindle versions, and they're both uh, pretty inexpensive. I mean, the Coyote America book is in a mass paperback printing that Amazon sells for seven ninety nine. So, oh my God. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty inexpensive book. And yeah. I think American Serengeti paperback is about 12 bucks. Yeah, and will you please come back on the show because we didn't even get to talk about coyotes. <laughs> and you you no, say we coyotes, we say coyotes here. We didn't even get to talk about it. And that book is coming out in the fall of, uh, well, actually, no, you already have Coyote America out, but you have a new book coming out, Wild New World, America's Animals Confront Humanity, and that's coming out in fall 2022? That's correct. Okay. Yes. Maybe you can come back on the show. We could talk about uh, coyotes or coyotes. That would be amazing. Yeah, well, that book actually explains why we have two different pronunciations. Oh, oh, good. Oh, my God. You know what? Can you tell me that? Let's head on over to the after show. I'd love to uh, learn more about that. So, uh, li- listeners, <laughs> all you have to do to head on over to the after show is go to patreon.com slash animals to the max. All right, let's head on over. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.